you know, I don't think Steve Jobs was out to, to get rich. Hmm. He was out to do something really spectacular. I don't think Bill Gates was out to get rich. He was out to do something really spectacular. I'm sure the people at Google were out to, as they said, give everyone in the world access to all the world's information. In all three cases, they got rich as a byproduct of having a spectacular, world-changing idea. The people who follow them, they're asking, what silly app can I create that will get me bought out for $10 million? What's going on, you guys? Man, I'm excited about this week. I just love the fact that we're doing this new kind of re-energizing of the podcast. The new entrance music, the interviews, it's all good stuff, man. It's all good stuff. And I'm very excited to bring you the interview today with Barry Schwartz, the author of Why We Work. If you've read the book before, if you listen to the podcast on Monday, then you definitely want to tune into this one because it just goes to a deeper level than you wouldn't get if you read the book or that you don't get from listening on Monday. He shares new stories, new anecdotes, uh, new examples, things that just come from his many, many years of research. And I just love the opportunity to talk to these authors and share some of that knowledge with you guys. So definitely tune in. I hope you guys like that one. Here's the interview with Barry Schwartz, the author of Why We Work. I'm joined today by our guest, Barry Schwartz, the author of Why We Work. Barry, how you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you, and thanks for uh, having me on your show. For those of you, who, for those of um, uh, the listeners out there who don't know who you are, or what you do, give us a quick rundown. Well, I uh, I was a professor of psychology at a place called Swarthmore College for 45 years. I retired in June and moved to the West Coast, and I now have a, a position, uh, a sort of visiting position at the business school at the University of California at Berkeley. I've been interested for most of my career at sort of in the in the in human motivation and in the intersection between psychology and economics. So Barry, when I first read your book Why We Work, I was captivated by it because you say the way we work it's broken. Why is it broken? Why is it that how we work is broken? I mean, I, to me personally, I think it's okay. You know, I go to work, I get paid, I'm fairly happy. Why is it broken? Well, there are two ways to answer the question, why is it broken? One is, what's the evidence that is broken? And the answer to that is when you do surveys, as the Gallup organization does, of how satisfied people are with their work, you find that somewhere on the order of 12% of the working people across the world are, are excited about their work. Um, roughly half the world is indifferent, 40% hate what they do, and the rest are really enthusiastic about what they do. So what that means is that oh, the overwhelming majority of people spend half their waking lives doing things they don't want to do in places they don't want to be. So that's the evidence that work is broken. Um, the question then is, why is work broken? And my view is that we have been so... Uh, uh, influenced by a kind of ideology that comes out of economics that nobody ever wants to work. And the only reason people work is for a paycheck. So as long as you're paying them, um, they'll work. And if you don't pay them, they'll stop and nothing else matters. If they're getting paid, it doesn't matter what the work is. And that's sort of been the guiding light of economics since Adam Smith. It's demonstrably not true. 
but more and more workplaces over the years have created environments where people uh, can't be engaged by their work, they have no autonomy, they can't exercise their creativity and judgment, um, the work they do is essentially meaningless, it's only the paycheck. And if you're working only for a paycheck, you're not satisfied with your work. So the why is that we swallowed the, uh, the beliefs about human nature handed down by economists, and they're wrong. So let's take a step back for a second. Why did you create the book in the first place? I'm trying to, uh, well, um, what I'm trying to do is uh, sort of enlighten people who have some control over the character of the workplace, that not only are they creating really miserable, unhappy workers, but they're also leaving money on the table because workers who are really engaged by their work do better work. So they're costing their companies money by essentially de-skilling work and excessively supervising uh, workers. Um, and I think it's a, it's a crime. It's an incredible waste of human potential for people to spend half their waking lives doing stuff they detest. Hmm. And it's not necessary. So I wrote the book in the hope that this sort of new generation uh, coming up who will be taking uh, leadership positions in many companies will uh, take it as their task to transform the way those companies do business. There's some evidence that the millennial generation, uh, I hesitate to make generalizations like this, uh, there, there are two, um, two signs for, for real hope on my part. One is that women find this more intolerable than men. And the other is that millennials find it intolerable. Millennials want work that means something. Women want work that means something. And so what, that, what that's likely to mean is that the, you know, the rising generation, lots of women and, and lots of people in their late 20s and 30s are simply going to um, demand that the work they do and the work they have other people do is different from what their parents did. Yeah, is this why you see a lot of people, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe this isn't happening, you might have a better uh, finger on the pulse than I do. Is this maybe why you see a lot of millennials opting for you know independent positions, consulting positions, positions where they're allowed to work remotely? From myself, I'm a millennial, and my I always look for work and opportunities to work somewhere where there's a deeper purpose. And why? Because when things get really hard, I fall back on that purpose, my why. Why do I come into work every day? It's not for the paycheck, I'll tell you that much, because I can go anywhere and get a paycheck. It doesn't matter. It's what's my mission? What am I doing here? Exactly. If you don't have that, then, exactly. if you don't have that, then what are you doing? Then honestly, I think you're just there because you're stuck and maybe you're getting a great benefits package. Maybe you don't think you can get paid that elsewhere. And I know some people like that as well. And that's a miserable place to be. That's exactly my point. And you know, you can certainly imagine that if you're desperate, some job is better than no job. Mm -hmm. uh, a paycheck is better than no paycheck. But it's really just a consolation prize that you're getting a paycheck. And it's possible that a lot of millennials are choosing the sort of independent contractor slash consultant route because they want the kind of autonomy and flexibility that that makes possible. You know, they can drop a job or, or a... Or a uh, an employer, if they find um, that they don't, they're not eager to get out of bed in the morning and, and uh, do the work. 
and seek and seek, uh, you know, to do work that's more meaningful. Uh, it's possible. I don't think that's sustainable in the long run. It's not an easy lifestyle, and it seems attractive when you're in your 20s and you don't have a family. <laughs> but once you got a family, once you got kids, once you got you know college bills looming, it's a di- becomes a different story. So there's a kind of you know the independence that young people show. Uh, I think to, to a large degree comes from the fact that they're only taking care of themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know if they have a if they have a lean period, they can get by. They can sleep on their friend's couch or something. <laughs> but it all gets much more complicated when you're a family. That's exactly right. So I, the book essentially was designed for people working within organizations who are managing people like managers, CEOs, um, even entrepreneurs who are starting businesses, you know, planting these seeds nice and early so they understand, um, you know, what it takes to grow an organization where people are engaged, you know, people have autonomy, they have they have purpose in their work. So what I want from you, Gary, is again, in the nature of Cut, of Cut the Crap podcast, what we like to do is we like to really focus on the most powerful takeaways from the book. So I want to hear from you. What are your two or three most powerful takeaways from why we work? Let me be, let's just start with your first one. The first one is that financial incentives are the worst possible motivation that you can use. They do more harm than good. Uh, and if you think that's the magic bullet, your, your organization is, uh, is not going to succeed. Not only that, uh, second, it makes sense to trust your employees, uh, if you create an environment where what the work is worth doing, you can then trust your employees to do the work well without you looking over their shoulders because they want to do the work well because the work is worth doing. So I think, mm-hmm. I think those are the two, the two key takeaways. And the third, I guess, is that the, or you need to have an organization that actually has meaning. You, know, okay. you need to be doing something as an organization that's worthwhile. And then you can inspire your employees because what you're doing is because what you're doing is worthwhile. They'll know they'll see that what they're doing is worthwhile. And then the paycheck is necessary. People have to pay their bills, but it's not what's going to get people out of bed in the morning. It's a totally different. The question is not how can I get rich. The question is how can I make a difference in the world. That's where you start. Mm. My own view is that the first generation in in, uh, in the tech world. You know, I don't think Steve Jobs was out to to get rich. He was out to do something really spectacular. I don't think Bill Gates was out to get rich. He was out to do something really spectacular. I'm sure the people at Google were out to, as they said, give everyone in the world access to all the world's information. In all three cases, they got rich as a byproduct of having a spectacular, Hmm. world-changing idea. The people who follow them, they're asking, what silly app can I create that will get me bought out for $10 million? So, you know, the motivation has changed. They, they, they're interested in getting rich, and they're using their technological skills as a tool. Uh, the first generation was, was interested in changing the world and got rich by accident. At least that's my interpretation. To really go outside of money. And to say that money isn't the driving factor. Now, if you tell people that and you say, you know, is money the big determining factor for your, your ability to be happy in your job? I think for the most part, people know the answer to that. They say, no, I need more than just money. Money doesn't buy me happiness, especially at work. 
But it sure as hell helps, though. I mean, if you're getting paid a great deal of money in a job that you hate, you can justify it and say, you know what? I can't stand, you know, this nine to five. But I'll tell you, you know, I live in a nice house, drive a nice car, wear nice clothes. I can go out to eat. So ah, it kind of balances out. But the difference is, though, they don't know that they can have it better. They can have it better. They can have their cake and eat it, too. Can you get paid a lot of money and still have that autonomy in the workplace, that purpose? Is it possible? Well, I think it's possible, but I think there's a need, there needs to be a lot of changing of people's mindsets about what an effective workplace is. You know, at the moment, it may well be that a lot of people find themselves having to make a trade-off. Am I going to live a com- comfortable upper-middle-class life doing work I hate? Or am I going to ha- uh, live a struggling lower-middle-class life doing work that I value? And it's one or the other. Do I go profit? Do I go non-profit? You know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be that way. And I think you're, I think you're right that a very, you know, a very generous salary um, is the, uh, takes some of the edge off mm-hmm. going to work that you detest or that seems pointless. But, but still, you know, you look back after doing this for 40 years and realize that you have spent half your life doing stuff that you didn't want to do and fancy suits, uh, luxury vacations and membership in golf clubs just doesn't compensate for throwing half your life away. There it is. There it is right there. And I really want people to pay attention to that because that's, that's the truth here. And that's, that's a tough one to swallow. And you don't realize that until maybe you come to the end of your life and you say, Holy crap, what did I do with my life? You know, I spent it 40 plus hours, 40, 60, 80 hours, maybe a week working in a job that I hated only to work for the weekends, you know, that cliche or, or work on the evening or, yep. or to, to have, to have time just to relax in the evenings. But man, did I waste my life? Did I waste my life? You're, exactly. you're saying, you're saying there's a better way. There is a better way. And you're challenging companies to say by putting financial incentives in place, it doesn't increase um, uh, productivity, doesn't increase happiness. So instead of putting financial incentives in place, what do managers, what do CEOs, what can they do instead to engage their workplace, to make their employees, I don't know, I don't know if it's the right word, but happier in the workplace, to generate greater productivity and have them become greater contributors to the organization? Well, I think step one is to identify the meaning and purpose of the organization. What does the organization do to make people's lives better? Step two is not not just make this a slogan that you trot out at the annual shareholders meeting, but something that's actually embodied in the day-to-day practices of the organization and the people who work there. And then step three is to trust your employees and give them enough autonomy and discretion that they can actually pursue the mission of the organization. Let me give you a concrete example um, that it seems, you know, uh, not a very promising example. Example, you know the the, uh, the national chain, the Container Store. Mm-hmm. It's in shopping malls all over the United of States. They they sell these plastic things that you put junk that you shouldn't have bought in, <laughs> but you don't have to look at it all the time. Right. So you know they're in every mall, and all they're doing is selling plastic containers and bookcases and stuff like that. The people who work there are unbelievably inspired. Uh, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how the management does it, but every time you walk into that store, it's clear that what the sales force thinks 
is here comes somebody with a problem and I can help solve it. Not here comes a customer that I can sell something to. Here comes a customer that's looking for a $50 item and maybe I can sell them a $100 item. Here's somebody with a problem and I know how to solve it. Hmm. And sometimes that might mean sending him out with nothing because he doesn't really need any of the stuff that we sell. And they're unbelievably, they're knowledgeable about what they carry. They listen to your prop, they, to your need. They often come up with suggestions that wouldn't have occurred to you. And they're, and they're, uh, the sort of this spirit and joy with which they do their work is extraordinary. And all they're doing is selling retail in shopping malls. And they're not, you know, they're not doing brain surgery. They're just selling plastic containers in shopping malls. <laughs> but, but think about it. Every time you walk into a store, department store, one attitude that a salesperson can have is, how can I sell this person something? Mm-hmm. Another attitude is, how can I solve this person's problem? Think how different your approach will be if you think your job is to identify my problem and then help me solve it, rather than you know, sort of getting a sense of where my vulnerability is so you can upsell me or sell me stuff you get the biggest commissions on. With sales in general, you know, a lot of the times your your sales managers, your your uh, your sales staff, they are given incentives to sell more. You know, many years ago, I used to work at General Nutrition Center, GNC, and I sold yep. supp- health supplements to people. And there were great commissions at the time. I don't know if they do still do commissions, but at the time they had great commissions on certain products. There were certain products that you they really wanted you to sell because the commission was really high. You know, you sell this product, every single one you sell, you get 10 bucks off it. So... You know, at the end of my, 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 my shift, you know, going through university, I'd make quite a bit of money. You don't get the same satisfaction from just selling product as you do from actually helping people. And when I actually figured that out, exactly. I, I became a better salesperson and I made more commission and I was happier and people loved me on, they would wait cause I'd only work Sundays and I would get flooded on Sundays. People coming to me, my manager would say, why does everybody wait to Sunday to come to you? Because I wasn't just selling them stuff. I was actually helping them solve their problem, which actually made me extremely happy. And so for anybody in sales well, so roles out there, it's the same thing. Well, you just captured everything I was trying to say with your own personal example. Um, it's, um, it, 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 it makes the customer happier. Mm-hmm. It makes the employee happier. And it ends up being good for business. You sell more stuff. And you make more money. Uh, and, and the point is that everybody who works retail is potentially in that position or when you, where you make a call to a helpline because there's some piece of technology that's not working, you know, is the attitude of the person you're talking to, how do I end this call as fast as Mm. possible? Or is the attitude, how can I help this person solve a problem? I wonder if people, managers out there listening right now, I wonder if they actually look for that when they're hiring. So if I was hiring somebody in sales and you know I'm selling, I don't know, selling dog food, and I say, you know, are you passionate about dogs? Tell me about dogs. Do you love dogs? Um, why are you pas- passionate about selling dog food? Make sure that they're not just solely motivated by the incentives attached to it. They're not motivated by the prestige attached to the role, perhaps, but that they're actually motivated to the purpose, the reason why that product exists, the fact that it solves a problem. I think that if people do that, if sales managers hire for that, then maybe, maybe we have a, a better chance of hiring the right people and creating that organization filled with people who are passionate about what they do. 
Uh, well, I think that's right. Now, it should be said, it's not easy to mm. identify such people. And once it sort of gets known that this is what hiring managers are looking at, you, people will start trying to game the system and all of a sudden everybody will be <laughs> passionate about everything. So, <laughs> you, you know, you, you, you need to be pretty perceptive. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a management guy at Stanford named Jeffrey Pfeffer who made this incredibly important observation that was eye-opening to me. He said, you should hire for the traits you don't know how to train and then train the traits you do know how to train. Hmm. So if you're hiring somebody in a technical position, you know, can you, can you do Excel spreadsheets? You're going to spend, be spending all day doing Excel spreadsheets. Well, you know how to teach people how to do Excel spreadsheets. You don't know how to teach people to be passionate about their work. You don't know how to teach people to have integrity. You don't know how to teach people to really care about serving clients. So better to hire somebody with no technical skills, but with those character traits, and then teach them the technical stuff than to hire somebody who's got the technical skills and then cross your fingers and hope that he's actually interested in, in, uh, in serving uh, the ends of the organization. Hmm. So most companies don't do this. They hire because they want, basically they want somebody who can be productive from day one. So they hire somebody who's got the skills and then they put them at a desk and they say, go to it. And they hope that this is actually a, the kind of person they want in their organization. It's, it's costly in the short run to hire somebody who you're going to have to train mm -hmm. than it is to hire somebody who seems to already have the training. Okay. But I think it's worth thinking about hiring basically for character rather than for skills and then teaching the skills. So, Barry, talk to me a little bit about the, the trust your employees takeaway. You know, to me, when I hear that, it doesn't uh, – honestly, it doesn't mean too much to me. You know, trust your employees. If I'm a manager or a CEO, you know, trust your employees. I can trust them, but – at the same time, Barry, I got to run a tight ship here, man. I mean, I, I got to make sure my people are in line. I got to make sure that they're doing their work. I got to make sure they're productive. So I got to have systems and processes in place. I need to make sure I have checkpoints. You know, what do you say to those, those managers, those CEOs? Well, I think it's a matter of degree. Of course, you need to have accountability and you need to have systems and you need to have checkpoints. But the idea that because some of that is good, more of it is better is the wrong idea. So, of course, it can't be just chaos. But on the other hand, having a system that's so rigid that everyone is following a script and everyone knows that a manager is counting every keystroke and watching every move, uh, is it destroys the morale of people in the organization because it makes them just pieces of the machinery and deprives you of their... Um, uh, Ability maybe to see things that you wouldn't notice and feel like they can use their judgment when a situation comes up that's different from uh, from the run of the mill. You know, I just recently watched a movie called Sully. It's about this airplane pilot who lands a, a U.S. Airways plane in the Hudson uh, and saved 100, all 150 passengers. Um, birds flew into the engines and knocked out both of the engines almost immediately after takeoff. So anyway, the focus of the movie is not so much on the event, but on the aftermath of the event, because there's a hearing. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the National Tra Traffic Safety Board 
does all this research and has the voice recorder and everything and says, you know, you could have turned around and gotten back to the airport. And they're basically accusing him of taking an unnecessary risk. And, uh, and he tries to tell them that, no, he couldn't have made it. Uh, and there's something wrong with their simulations if they think he could have made it. And what they finally realize is that when, with the simulations, the people doing the simulations got to practice them 15 or 16 times and then basically made the decision about what to do instantaneously. As soon as the birds flew in the wing, they're turning around and heading back. And he says, you know, it takes a little bit of time to figure out what to do, to figure out what happened and to figure out what to do. And when you build that delay in, in the simulations, everything, every effort crashes except for doing what he did, which is landing the plane in the Hudson. Mm -hmm. So my point is that he felt like he had the freedom to use his discretion to solve a problem that no one could have anticipated and built the system to prevent. Hmm. And, you know, talented people want to be in that position. They want to be uh, in a position where they have some autonomy, some control, and can use their experience uh, and um, uh, to, do, to figure out what the right thing to do is. And when you over-monitor, over-control, and over-regularize, you kill this in people. Hmm. And what that means is that the good people are going to leave, or they're going to just stop thinking about their work and just do it like robots. Right which is not what you want. So when you say trust employees, and again, we, we want to try to help people who are listening right now to get a good understanding of what this means, but trust your employees. It doesn't mean, you know, not to have processes and checkpoints and what have you in place. It's more about giving your employees the opportunity to express themselves through work by giving them choice, by giving them a voice, by listening to them. Um, is that what you mean by choice? It is. Or it, sorry, it's by, by trust? assuming... It, it's it, it's assuming here, the standard model is the assumption that your employees are trying to uh, come in trying to rip you off. Hmm. They're going to do as little as they possibly can get away with for as much as they possibly can get. So your job as a manager is to prevent that from happening. Right? Everyone's hmm. trying to beat you. Mm -hmm. So you need system, control systems in place so that people can't beat you. Mm. There's an alternative view, which is people basically want to feel at the end of the day like it was a day well spent, meaning that they, as I say, made some aspect of the world better as a result of what they did. They're not out to beat you. They're not out to take advantage. They're not out to do as little as possible to get as much as possible. And the question is, how can you facilitate their legitimate desire to do their work well? And that doesn't mean chaos, and it doesn't mean no control, and it doesn't mean no accountability, but it means assume the best, but measure enough so that when you get this occasional person who does take advantage, you can identify it and either change him or get rid of him. But we start out assuming it basically every, it's like you need, you know, like you're, you're going to lock these people up in prison for eight hours and don't <laughs> let them go until they've done their day's work. <laughs> It's funny. It's a different perspective. And I think that it'll resonate with some people and maybe others it won't. And those people it doesn't resonate with, maybe they're not in the right position. I mean, in your experience, do you maybe. find that it's just, do you, do you find that there's people out there who might be able to take, to take the lessons and the information that you share in your book, Why We Work, 
do you feel that you know a, perhaps a manager who is um, overly critical, a manager who's a little aggressive, a little rough around the edges, you know they don't necessarily trust your, their employees. Um, do you have any advice for that person who you know maybe maybe they want to change change things around this year? Maybe they want to start to get better. They want to become a better manager. They want to be more trusting. How do they do that? I'm not sure that there's a formula here, but I think that if we st- stop thinking of the relation between managers and employees as adversarial, if we thought about instead as, as, um, as teammates rather than opponents, your attitude toward your, toward your teammates is different from your attitude toward your opponents. Mm. Um, your attitude toward your friends and the way you treat your friends is different from the attitude that people have toward the folks they supervise. So we all, almost all of us, except for the real you know, pathological types, <laughs> we all have relations with other people that are good models for what a productive, satisfying workplace can be like. And it doesn't mean giving up authority. You know, parents have authority over their children without being authoritarian. And if parents don't have authority over their children, we say, my God, what a terrible parent. (laughs) But if a parent is authoritarian, we say, my God, what a terrible parent. (laughs) That's right. So, So you need to have authority and also give the kids enough freedom that they can develop their own talents and interests. And I think... That's the kind of, uh, so, so presumably these people who are, you know, tight ass, ruthless managers <laughs> are probably lovely and loving parents. Hmm. So they know how to do that. They just need to take a skill they already have and apply it in a domain where they don't apply it. And right. is this going to work in all situations? Probably not. I'm not sure that working in a fast food restaurant, there is much to be said, although I suppose even there, you know, people come in, a mom who looks exhausted from having worked all day with her three young kids, and you're saying, my God, if I treat these people well, courteously and with respect, I'm going to lighten this woman's load, and she clearly has a burden, so I can make their day better by doing my job well. I don't think it's promising in a fast food restaurant, but even there... There's room for a change of attitude that it's not just about the paycheck. Absolutely. My friend, Barry Schwartz, the author of Why We Work. Barry, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing your insights with us and uh, digging a little bit deeper into why we work. So before I let you go here, what are you working on these days? What's a hot button topic? What's something you're researching? What's something you're getting into right now that uh, maybe we can look forward to uh, speaking with you about in the future? Well, I'm considering writing a book with a, a colleague of mine who teaches at Yale on, on the evils of uh, relying on incentives. Oh, I'll have to get you on the but, show again to talk about that in the future when you get that book. Well, out. yeah, I should live so long. <laughs> we should hope so, my friend. <laughs> we should hope so. Barry, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it, and so does everybody else. It's been a pleasure. There. Perfect. Thank you, my friend. Thanks. Bye bye. Now, was I right or was I right? I told you. I told you that if you tuned in, you would just get more information. A different type of perspective, new stories, new anecdotes. I love this. This is awesome. I can't wait to just keep going with these interviews because it just adds a different dynamic, a different element. I think it just brings more high-quality information, good content to you. And 
Again, that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Just trying to make it better every single week. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. I really enjoyed this too. If you enjoyed it, please, you know, go support Barry. Pick up the book, Why We Work. If you guys enjoyed this um, interview, then please support me. Go online, go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. It would mean a great deal to me as well. But my friends, that is a wrap for this week. So I will catch you back here next week with a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, and now, of course, the interviews as well. Can't wait to get back here next week, you guys. Have yourselves an awesome, productive week. Take it easy. I love you guys.